Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be continuing our summer series in the Psalms as we look together at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And as you find your place in your Bible or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning. We're going to be returning to Psalm 89 uh, again and again as we consider repurposing robust promises for ragged times. Lee and I were married in 2012, and we're a blended family. Uh, I have two girls, Lee has four girls, and my two girls were best friends with Lee's oldest two um, before we even started talking. And so our story is kind of like the parent trap meets the Brady Bunch. When, when we got married, uh, I knew that there were some things that were going to change. I was going from being a family of three to a family of eight overnight. And one of those things that was going to change was the way I ate meals at a table, right? Our table at that point only sat four people. And so we needed a new table. And so Lee and I had asked someone to build a rectangular table that sat eight people and it kind of barely fit into our kitchen space there. But this table was a special table. It was symbolic. It symbolized our two families coming together and becoming a new table, a new family, around a new table, right? So uh, <laughs> we became a new table. That's a whole new, whole new concept there. Um, <laughs> everybody should strive to become a new table. Um, so in 2018, I accepted the position to come here to be a pastor at Redeemer. And when we did that, we built an addition. And the addition has been great for extended hospitality and having growth groups into our homes. We also got a new table. And this table seats 12 in our home. But with the old table being special, Lee didn't want to get rid of it. And so she asked the contractors to repurpose it. And so they took that table and they cut it in half and they painted it white and it became the bar in between our kitchen and our living area. You wouldn't recognize it, but it's still there. It's just been repurposed. And that's what's happening in Psalm 89 this morning. Verses 1 through 37 appear to have been written by Ethan the Ezraite. And Ethan the Ezraite from 1 Kings chapter 4, we know, was a contemporary of Solomon. And Solomon's reign was the height of Israel's glory. There was the United Kingdom, right? The borders stretched as far as the borders ever stretched under Solomon's reign. And there was wealth and wisdom and Ethan writes about God's eternal covenant with David, that there would be a Davidic king who would sit on the throne and rule forever. And there's background here with 2 Samuel 7. You can read that historical text. But Ethan, in Psalm 89, highlights God's covenant love and his faithfulness. And Psalm 89 probably existed like that, just verses 1 through 37 by Ethan the Ezraite for 400 years. That was the original song. And then it was repurposed. The repurposed version takes the original song in verses 1 through 37 and adds verses 38 through 51. 
And when you get to 38 through 51, there's a sudden shift in tone. You go from the joyous celebration of God's eternal covenant to a lament that's filled with grief and questions and accusations. Why repurpose a song like this? Well, the psalmist knows that there can be times and circumstances in our lives where the promises of God bring lament and grief. And some of you are wondering, how? Right? I thought God's promises always gave us hope. But you see, sometimes there's a gap. There's a gap between God's promises and our present reality. Have you felt that gap? You, you know, in music theory, a minor chord presses and pushes for resolution. And in a similar way, that gap between God's promises and our present reality evokes longings. Longings for God to make good on his promises. Longings for God to bring about the world as it was meant to be, to set all things right, to bring deep shalom and flourishing, to bring the good life and to take us home. And we're not there yet. And so the second psalmist, the second author, experienced this gap. You see, this psalm appears to have been, been written sometime after 586 B.C. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls and the ten tribes are dispersed to Assyria. And in 586, the southern kingdom falls and the two tribes that are left are marched off into exile. And so in 586... There is no longer a Davidic king on the throne. And it seems that the promises of God with that eternal covenant, it seems that those promises have failed. And so the second psalmist is looking at those promises and his present reality, and he's experiencing a gap. And so he takes Ethan's original song and he repurposes it. He adds verses 38 through 51, a lament that's filled with grief. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Lamenting God's promises in the gap anticipates future fulfillment. Let me say that again. Lamenting God's promises in the gap anticipates future fulfillment. We're going to look at the psalm this morning under three headings, which are the three stanzas of the psalm. In verses 1 through 18, we're going to see a faithful God. A faithful God. In verses 19 through 37, we're going to look at an eternal covenant. An eternal covenant. And then in verses 38 through 51, we'll consider a burning question. A burning question. Now, because of the length of the psalm, it's 52 verses this morning. Because of the length of the song, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to read each stanza individually, and we'll unpack it, and then we'll get to the next stanza as we go. As we come to God's Word this morning, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your promises are so glorious. And our present reality sometimes is so far from that. And so as we stand in this gap and we come to this repurposed song this morning, 
I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider together a faithful God, verses 1 through 18. This first stanza is about God's covenant love and faithfulness. It's about his power and glory. It's about his righteousness and justice. So let's look together at verses 1 through 18. At the end, uh, we'll do a little, uh, a little response here. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people will say, thanks be to God. Let's focus our attention on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. A maskel of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praised your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. So verses 1 through 4 in our text this morning are an overview. They're a summary. And they do what an overviewer and a summary is supposed to do. That is, they tell you what the psalm is going to be about. And it's set off by the word selah. And selah is some sort of musical interlude. And in this psalm, it gives structure to the psalm. So you'll see it again at the end of verse 37, at the end of the original psalm. Well, verses 1 and 2 are repetitive. Why, why do you think we repeat things? 
right? To, to drive home a point, to focus our attention. And Ethan, the Ezraite, in verses 1 and 2, is telling you that this psalm is about God's faithfulness, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Look at verses 1 and 2. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, steadfast love will be built up forever. And in the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. So you hear this repetition, right, of steadfast love and faithfulness. But there's another word that was repeated there in verses 1 and 2. Did you catch it? It's the word forever. Forever actually appears nine times in the text. And the psalmist is telling you that God's steadfast love is forever. That his faithfulness is forever. His character is enduring and unchanging and certain and permanent and reliable. And these two nouns, steadfast love and faithfulness, anchor God's character. That, that pairing appears six times in our text. It appears in verses 1, verse 2, verse 14, verse 24, verse 33, verse 49. And faithfulness appears by itself in verse 5 and verse 8. Now, this particular Hebrew word in the Old Testament for faithfulness only appears 49 times, and seven of those times appear here in Psalm 89. And the idea of this is firmness and steadfastness and fidelity. You see, faithfulness points to the covenant. It's covenant faithfulness, that God will always be true to his word. The psalmist is telling you that God's promises are certain, that God's promises never fail, that he is a faithful God. And faithfulness is paired with chesed. And chesed is a Hebrew word worth knowing. It's got that good guttural sound, chesed, uh, to it. And it's translated steadfast love here in the ESV. And the essence of chesed is love. But it's more than that. It's a covenant love. It's rooted in God's covenant and it results in action. And because it's connected with the covenant, there's a sense of loyalty, a sense of certainty. This love has a binding commitment. And so there's a tenacity to it. There's a durability to it. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls it the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. And the Jesus Storybook Bible perhaps says it best. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And the psalmist is telling you, this is your God. This is your God. He's full of hesed and faithfulness. And the psalmist here is just repeating what God said about himself. Do you remember in Exodus 34, when God passes before Moses and reveals himself to Moses, God says, he proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is your God, 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And verses 5 through 18 unpack this description. In verse 5, Ethan is telling you that God is worthy of praise. In verses 6 and 7, he's saying no one compares to God. Verse 8, no one is as mighty as him. Verses 9, 11, and 12, he rules over creation. Verses 10 and 13, he's mighty and victorious in battle. And by the way, look at verse 10 there, that Rahab that God crushes in verse 10. That isn't the Rahab from Joshua chapter 2 who hid the Israelite spies and then ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. This Rahab is a legendary sea monster in ancient Near Eastern literature who personifies chaos. In other words, the psalmist is saying God even crushes ancient Near Eastern myths. No one is as mighty as him. And then look at verse 14. Because of God's hesed and faithfulness, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then verses 15 through 18, his people, those who exalt in him, are exalted and protected. You see, the psalmist is saying, behold your God. Give the festal shout. Walk in the light of his face, verse 15. Exalt in his name. Exalt in his righteousness, verse 16. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he is worthy of your worship. That's a faithful God. Well, then, secondly, in the second stanza, verses 19 through 37, we see an eternal covenant. We've already been introduced to this idea in verses 3 and 4. We saw a little bit about God's covenant with David, but it gets unpacked here in the second stanza. Let's look at Psalm 89, starting with verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted the chosen one from the people. I have found David my servant. With my oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my, my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne in the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all, 
I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this second stanza, we have this God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now he relates to his people through covenants. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Before the fall, God begins with a covenant in creation. And then after the fall, he extends his covenant of grace through covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And then finally, this covenant with David. And in verses 19 through 27, Ethan focuses on David's kingship. And he shows his artistic brilliance by connecting stanza two back to stanza one. And he's grounding David's kingship in God's kingship. Verses 19 through 21 say God has exalted and established David to be the highest king, verse 27. Why? Because God, verses 6 through 8, is exalted and incomparable. Verses 22 and 23, David will be mighty and crush his foes in battle because God, verses 8, 10, and 13, is mighty and crushes his foes in battle. Verse 24, steadfast love and faithfulness are with David because, verse 14, of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 25, David will rule over the seas because God, verse 9, rules over the seas. Verse 26, David will call God my father because the king belongs to the Holy One of Israel, verse 18. In other words, David's sovereignty, David's glory, his majesty, his victory derive from God. David is the highest king because God is the highest king. David is the highest king because God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's the glory of David's kingship. Verses 28 through 37 then focus on David's dynasty. And this comes from God's eternal covenant with David. And you can read more about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's a little background. For about 400 years, from the time of Moses in 1406 BC to the time of David in 1010, God represented his presence by the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant traveled around in a tent. And that tent was a tabernacle, and it was good that it was mobile because God's people were constantly moving around. But now, David is on the throne in Jerusalem, and God's people have inherited the promised land. And David had a nice house. He had a nice house built for himself. It was a house of cedar, but God still dwelled in a tent, and David wants to build God a house. And he comes to Nathan the prophet, and through Nathan the prophet, God says, oh David, I've got something much better. I'm going to build you 
a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." I want you to see that there's a tension here in the statement of the covenant. You see, on the one hand, God is saying the kingdom is forever. But on the other hand, he's saying iniquity brings discipline. The kingdom is forever. Iniquity brings discipline. And yet, discipline will not break God's covenant. And that's the same tension that we have in Psalm 89. Look at verses 28 and 29. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and the throne and his throne as the days of the heavens. You see, Ethan is telling you that the kingdom is forever. But then keep reading, look at verse 30 through 32. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. You see, the kingdom is forever, but iniquity brings discipline. Look at verse 33 and 34 but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. You see, discipline will not break God's covenant. Do you feel the tension? God's kingdom is forever. Iniquity brings discipline, but discipline will not break God's covenant. And that brings us to the end of the original psalm. The end of the original psalm here. Stanza one, we have a faithful God. Stanza two, we have an eternal covenant. But you see, for the second author for, who repurposed Ethan's original song, these promises brought lament and grief. Because the second psalmist found himself in the gap between God's promises and his present reality. He found himself at a time when this eternal covenant, the covenant with David, appears to be broken. And what does that say about God? And God appears to be faith, faithless. And so he repurposes this song. And he adds a third stanza. And that brings us to a burning question. Verses 
38 through 51. Let's look at this last stanza here. 38 through 51. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then we have a note here at the end, verse 52, is probably added by the redactor of the Psalter, and he adds it here to close out book three. And it says this, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Thanks be to God. So verse 38 begins, But now, but now now. You have a faithful God, and you have an eternal covenant, but now, right? The psalmist is experiencing this gap. It's setting up a contrast here between God's promises and the psalmist's reality. Everything is going to be flipped on its head. Everything's going to be turned upside down. Verses 38 to 45 contain 14 verbs that express God's action against his anointed. Verse 38, God cast him off and rejected him. God was full of wrath against his anointed. Verse 39, God renounced the covenant. God defiled his crown. Verse 40, he breached his walls. He laid his strongholds in ruins. Verse 42, he exalted his foes. He made his enemies rejoice. Verse 44, he made his splendor to cease, cast his throne to the ground. Verse 45, he cut short the days of his youth and he covered him with shame. And this seems to be a contradiction and a conundrum. The anointed one is in ruin. Where is this faithful God? Where is this eternal covenant? You see, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness appear to have been replaced by wrath and rejection. But you see, God's faithfulness cuts both ways. Iniquity brings discipline. 
But the second psalmist is asking, but isn't the kingdom forever? Isn't the covenant eternal? His reality doesn't seem to be matching up with the promises of God. And he finds himself in the gap. Have you been there? And so he cries out, verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? And you see, these are cries of lament. The questions, how long and where is, are ways to express grief in suffering. They're questions of disorientation. They're questions that we ask when our reality doesn't line up with the promises of God. And that's so much of our reality, isn't it? So often I see injustice and tribalism and oppression. I see relationships that are strained. I see abuse and trauma and depression. I see the world opposing God's design and clamoring for God's throne. I see brokenness and sickness and depression and death. And I think this isn't the good life. This isn't the life as it was meant to be. This isn't what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I cry out with a psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? But you see these cries of lament? They're also cries of faith. You see, what is it that the psalmist is lamenting? He's lamenting that the eternal covenant appears to be in ruins. He's lamenting that the faithful God appears to have gone missing. He's lamenting the promises of God, which means that he's still holding on to the promises of God. He's still clinging to the promises of God. He's disoriented. Why? Because his current reality doesn't line up with the promises of God, which means what? He's still orienting his life around the promises of God. And that's why this second psalmist took the original psalm and he repurposed it. You see, he could have just started the psalm at verse 38. The, The third stanza could stand alone. Why take Ethan's robust and beautiful hymn about a faithful God and an eternal covenant and repurpose it for ragged and despairing times? Why include verses 1 through 37 at all? He includes it because he's still orienting his life around God's promises. He's still holding on to that original song. He's still longing for those promises to be fulfilled. More than that, I would argue he's still expecting them to be fulfilled. You see, including verses 1 through 37 about a faithful God and an eternal covenant, about a kingdom that is forever and a king who is mighty and rules, at a time when there is no king on the throne and God's people are in exile, that's a sign of faith. It's expectant. It's anticipatory. It's looking to how the world will be rather than the world as it now is. But at the end of the psalm, 
that minor chord is still unresolved. Disorientation still persists. The promises of God's eternal covenant are still unfulfilled. We're still looking for a Davidic king to sit on the throne. And those promises, they lay unfulfilled for more than 400 years until the New Testament, when another offspring of David arrives. And unlike those before him, this Davidic descendant, verse 30, he kept God's law. He walked according to God's rules. In verse 31, he didn't violate God's statutes. He kept God's commandments. He did what even David couldn't. He was the covenant-keeping king. Oh, brothers and sisters, someone greater than David has come. And yet still, God acted against this Davidic descendant, his anointed. Verse 32, God punished him for transgressions with the rod, for iniquity with stripes. Verse 38, God cast him off and rejected him. God was full of wrath against his anointed. Verse 39, he defiled his crown. He exalted his foes. He made his enemies rejoice. Verse 44, he made his splendor to cease. He cast his throne to the ground. Verse 45, he cut short the days of his youth and he covered him with shame. You see, this covenant-keeping king paid the penalty because iniquity brings discipline. But he committed no iniquity. No, he paid the penalty for someone else. He paid the penalty for our covenant breaking. He paid the penalty for your covenant breaking and for my covenant breaking. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we are healed. And so God exalted him. Did you notice that in Psalm 2, there was never an Israelite king who had the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession? And in Psalm 72, there was never an Israelite king who had dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There was never an Israelite king who had all the kings of the earth fall down before him and all nations serve him. And even in Psalm 89, there was never an Israelite king who, verse 23, crushed all his foes. Verse 25, ruled over the rivers and the seas. Verse 26, called God my father. Verse 27, was the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, none of those statements were ever fulfilled by an Israelite king in history. And so they leave the reader searching for someone greater than David. And beloved, someone greater than David has come. His name is Jesus. 
And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, those promises, those promises that the psalmist clung to for all those years, even when they seemed to have failed and were cast in the dustbin of history, those promises about an eternal covenant where a Davidic king would be on the throne forever, highly exalted as the highest of the kings of the earth, crushing his foes and ruling over the nations, those promises have finally been fulfilled beyond the psalmist's wildest imagination. Jesus has come, and in his humiliation and exaltation, God has proved himself to be faithful, abounding in covenant love and faithfulness. And so, brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in that gap between God's promises and your present reality. The psalmist wants to encourage you to hang on and cry out because all of God's promises, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And one day, one day that king will come again and all the tension in your life, that gap between God's promises and your reality, it will finally be resolved and he will bring the good life. He will bring life as it was meant to be. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and everything sad will come untrue. And then we'll be home and we will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast and weep no more. You see, lamenting the promises of God in the gap anticipates future fulfillment. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we experience the gap in so many different ways in our lives. I pray for those who are experiencing the gap poignantly now. I pray that you would help them to hold on to those promises and long for the day when those promises will finally be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will feast in the house of Zion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.